welcome to another episode of Neurotech Brain Bites. This is Manishika and Zoe Stoney Hansen, and we're students at the University of Washington. This podcast series follows the exciting neuroengineering research going on at UW and interviews the students and researchers who make this work possible. Each podcast will interview people who are in the neuroengineering space, dive deep into their research, and hear all about their experiences. Well, today we're talking to Pierre Karashuk, a PhD student in neuroscience at University of Washington, working in the labs of Bing Brunton and John Tuttle. Pierre is also the chief science officer at Evolution Devices, where he leads the development of the algorithms for a smart muscle simulation device. Pierre, welcome to the podcast. Could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your advisor, your research interests, and your research. Yeah, I'm Pierre Karashuk. Uh, my research is focused on trying to piece together how sensors interact with the neural control in walking for flies. We all have in our bodies these sensors called proprioceptors that sense how much our joints flex, how much our muscles activate. And flies have analogous sensors. And we're wondering to what extent do these sensors play a role when the fly is walking and how, how is walking coordinated? Oh, cool. Okay. If you could describe your research as a sci-fi novel, how would you describe it? I think in the future, we'll have artificial spinal cords or perhaps just a little circuit inside of a spinal cord to replace just a broken piece of it, perhaps to help people walk. I, I think that's very exciting to have that, or perhaps even if we can understand how the sensory motor control happens, we could even extend it to not just walking, but perhaps you could interface with that control. You could feel as if you're walking, but you're controlling a machine. I think on the other end, if we can understand how flies walk specifically, they do it so fast, so flexibly. We don't really think about it, but if you look at a fly, it looks alive. If you look at a lot of modern robots, they don't feel alive. They have this kind of stuttering movement. Uh, they feel very inflexible. You feel like you might just topple them over if you like touch them. Yeah. I think in the future, we could have just very fluid robotics that really sense their environment. It's such a tight loop that it really feels alive, almost feels, feels flexible. Yeah, that would be really cool. So it sounds like you're excited about a lot of different possibilities in the future, including prosthetics and robotics. Um, I'm curious if there's anything else more tangible possibilities in the future that you're excited about or other big picture things that you're excited about in this field. I think personally, I'm most excited about being able to identify the whole circuit in the fly. I think it's really starting to come together that like all the neurons are getting mapped out with electron microscopy. And so we can actually go in, see a specific neuron and say, this neuron is controlling this muscle. I'm really excited about being able to piece together the whole circuit and for the first time in an animal to say, this is exactly what controls walking being able to fully like understand the entire circuit for what it is and the knowledge that kind of comes with that and the, the technical challenges that then you can actually do something about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That tells us a little bit about your research, but you also are working at a startup. So um, could you tell us a little bit about the startup and kind of how you and your co-founders came up with the idea for your particular startup? Yeah. So startup is actually also in, in motor control. 
and we're building a device that helps people with neurological disorders walk better. Specifically, there's one disorder called foot drop where due to nerve damage, the signals aren't coming down from the brain for the spinal cord and they have an inability to lift their foot as they walk. They tend to trip a lot. They might even fall. They tend to walk much less. So what we did is we built this device that stimulates their muscles at the right time. Specifically, we're focused on the tibia anterioris muscle, which controls lifting the foot during the swing phase. Mm-hmm. We've also been playing around with the, the hamstrings uh, that control knee flexion to help them bend their knee as they walk. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess what, what got you guys started on that route? I guess I have no idea what even gets you started on wanting to have a startup happen. Kind of, yeah, what was that process of getting started and where did the idea come from? Yeah, it is interesting how startups form sometimes. We started a long time ago. My friend, also named Pierre, uh, we went together to this hackathon and he wanted to build a device for his dad uh, who has multiple sclerosis. He saw there were kind of similar devices on the market, but they were pretty bulky. And also they cost a lot of money. Insurance didn't cover it. So we thought... We could just hack it, you know? Um, so we did. Uh, we built like a really hacky version in a weekend. It like barely worked. Uh, it did stim. They, we just kind of cut. You can buy these like muscle stimulators online just for like pain relief. But if you cut a wire there and attach it to an Arduino, you can stim. So we did that. That was the very first prototype. It was super, super big and bulky and barely worked. But as a proof of concept, we went from there for a year or two, we thought we kind of build like an open source version of this and kind of get people to use it. We started testing out with more people who had stroke as well, multiple sclerosis, diabetic neuropathy. We saw that seemed like really promising of, of an idea. I, I don't know. And we started to actually explore the startup space around it. Mm. I think it really kicked off when we actually got funding for it. We were able to actually put in resources people quit quit their jobs to work full-time on it. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, it sounds like that hackathon to startup process was you know, trying it out on uh, other people, maybe working on the product a little bit more, exploring like the, the market, uh, and then getting funding. That's, that's great. So it, it sounded like that the funding was like kind of the turning point. Would you have said that that's kind of like you know, that's when you decided to make this, uh, see how the startup went, see if you could actually try it as a startup. Yeah, I think it might've been, it's hard to draw. Like, I feel like it was a very organic process mm-hmm. kind of, and I think actually Pierre quit his job before we got funding, but I think that's how we got funding too, because we, he had time to apply to grants. What's been the most surprising thing to you about the startup process? It's a good question. I think... There are a lot of surprising things. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be like the most out there thing, but like anything that you kind of didn't expect <laughs> that came up along the way. I can't imagine that it was like an easy road. I think something recently that came up, we have been worried about this competitor for a while called Bioness. They got acquired recently and it sounds like they're not going to focus on this specific product anymore. So that kind of surprised me. I, it seems like if you stay long enough, the competitors that you were worried about so long ago may not be there anymore. Mm. When we were initially started out, we had a lot of questions from VCs and just like within ourselves, like, how are we going to compete with this other company? We're at the time, we're just free undergrads. 
it, just, uh, it didn't seem real. Like we, that's why we thought we just built like an open source thing that people can like build themselves. Like we, we weren't gonna try and build like a whole product, but yeah, I, I guess you can do it. it <laughs> that's what surprised me. I know it seems crazy, but like if you put in the years, you'll have a product by the end. I think other surprising things, I think the funding, like where the funding came from for me was very surprising. Mm -hmm. partially because I just didn't really know how funding worked uh, before I started this. Our biggest source of funding to this day is we got this grant from Toyota Mobility Foundation for a total of $550,000. At the time, it felt a little bit like it came out of nowhere. We had <laughs> kind of a prototype, uh, but they really believed in us and we got it. So I would say if you're starting a startup, don't worry about feeling like you don't have enough when you apply to grants. There's kind of this feeling like imposter syndrome when you're just like starting out. You're like, there's probably other companies that have been at this for like two, three more years than I have. They're much bigger. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, definitely apply to as many things as you can. Hmm. Nice. It sounds like a bit of uh, persistence and just going for it has really been been the key for, for all of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess one thing I'm kind of curious about, like you're saying, don't be worried too much about, you know, the competition and feeling like you don't have enough, but I guess, how do you know that your idea or your product is bringing something like new or interesting or worthwhile to the table, I guess. And maybe you don't know beforehand, but I'm just kind of curious your take on that. I think you should worry about that, <laughs> whether <laughs> your, your product is bringing something worthwhile. I think you should talk to your users. We could tell that even our like very janky prototype, like the people that were wearing it, it, it made a difference for them. Yeah. And I think that's also how we got some funding is because we could we knew that it made a difference. Yes. And so we could show that in like the presentation and like the grant materials. I think you should talk to your users, make sure that people want this. That's great advice especially like from a marketing standpoint, like you want to know that like somebody actually cares it would buy this, but I'm sure that helped like inform your guys' design down the road too. Yeah, absolutely. We've been iterating throughout, pushing more for like long longer and longer pilots with the device. Uh, we've learned a lot. Like we tried on ourselves, but there's just so many things that come up that we didn't anticipate. Mm. Like we knew from the beginning uh, when we like surveyed the users uh, from the beginning, we knew they wanted a sleek device. They wanted to kind of put it under their pants. It should be like easy to use, of course, uh, and last a whole day. But something we didn't anticipate is um, the device itself. You need to be able to put it on with one hand. There's this disorder of foot drop, like they can't lift their foot. Uh, and in the same vein, along that side of their body, like a lot of times they have impairments in their dexterity in their hands or their arms. So it was really important to have it put on with one hand. Mm. We tried so many different designs for like the, the Velcro, like the mag, uh, now we settled on a, on a magnet that kind of claps on. There are also surprises in terms of things that turned out to be easier than we thought when we actually did it. We've been developing this algorithm. We need it to be like robust across a lot of different people. Maybe we're gonna to need to collect data from like dozens of patients with all kinds of different gates. But we collected data from a few patients. Um, but we also did a lot of simulations on ourselves. Mm. And then we tested it on 
um, the pilot patients and it works like super consistently for them. I thought that I would have to build like a separate algorithm for stairs, but it just worked for that. So <laughs> that was also nice. We had a user, uh, we made like this demo video for Toyota. It was like a demo of like a user walking around um, at, like in his in his work office. Um, and we're just looking at the video and one at one point he just starts walking backwards and the device is still working. <laughs> so we're wow. like, what? Oh, wow. um, that's cool. Yeah, just, yeah, you'll discover for like some features are going to be more important than you realize some features you don't even, didn't even realize you needed and some features like maybe don't need at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really cool to kind of, yeah, hear about the, the easy things, the hard things and like all the stuff in between and kind of how you just have to be prepared for anything, I guess. You said that you guys were undergrads when you like started this thing. I guess, what kind of ended up drawing you to grad school? How did you make that decision to not get sucked into the startup and like continue on the road in academia? Like what was the the process to getting to grad school? That, that was a hard decision. Well, at the time when I applied to grad school, we, we thought it would be kind of a hobby thing. We'd have an open source thing. We'd kind of have a smaller thing to just help people. And so I applied to grad school in neuroscience, figuring that I want to do research in neuroscience. Uh, it's hard to do that without a PhD. And remind me again, your what was your undergrad degree in? It was in computer science and statistics. So yeah, curious if because you had the the undergrad degree in computer science and then neuroscience is like pretty different from computer science. So in some sense, maybe you kind of had to go back to school if that was what you wanted to do. Yeah, I think for computer science, there's kind of the, like if you want to do computer science research, there's the possibility of going into industry with a bachelor's. I think for neuroscience, it's not as feasible. There's starting to be more neurotech. So you said it was a hard decision. How did you uh, ultimately decide that grad school was what you were going to do? At the time, I was mostly thinking between industry and or research, like mm-hmm. academia. Industry for me would have been like more of like a software engineering type job. Yeah. I had done a soft, like a software engineering internship. Mm-hmm. It was actually somewhat research focused, but everyone else on my team had a PhD. And so I, I kind of asked around, actually, I asked a lot of people with PhDs, is it worth doing a PhD? Like, what do you think a PhD really provides you? Mm-hmm. And they told me that you can get a lot of the stuff that you get out of a PhD, like in terms of skills, you could get that without a PhD. But you can, it opens up a lot of doors in terms of what you can do. I think that was part of it. And then the other part is just that I, I really enjoy neuroscience. Like I love talking about the brain and the applications of neuroscience, like the neural circuits. And you don't really get to do that as much um, in a software engineering role. So what would be one piece of advice that you'd give an undergrad who might be interested in your field or someone who might be looking um, to enter grad school studying what you're studying? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, In terms of skills, I think for what I'm doing specifically, having like a computational foundation, like statistics foundation is like very valuable. Yeah. So if they're still an undergrad to take those kinds of courses, kind of like signal processing, especially I feel like is under the radar as an undergrad. And then in grad school, it seems to become like you see it a lot more, at least in computational neuroscience. Is this undergrad considering neuroscience? Like, is this 
<laughs> sort of like a general, weird. you know, it, uh, as a as a senior grad student, sort of what general advice would you give either undergrads or people interested in in grad school or uh, thinking about grad school too? I, I mean, I think you also went through that uh, thought process of academia versus industry, which a lot of students are doing. I'd say if you can try out both, mm-hmm. like get an internship in industry, try out like research in a lab. Yeah, it, it's hard to f- get a feel for it without being in it. You can totally ask people about it, but like there's a lot of like little things, like the environment that you're in at a specific team, who you talk to. I just felt like my whole world changed yeah. when I entered at a tech company versus being in like a neuroscience research lab. Like just completely different thought process, became a different person to some extent. It's just a lot of things to to feel. So try it out if you can. Having gap years is fine for that. Yeah, you don't know what you want until you've kind of tried it yourself. So thinking about like you've done a lot of time in grad school and thinking ahead of the future, what do you feel like your your plans are after grad school? Right now I'm thinking I'll try to do a postdoc. Really my my long-term goal is to be like a group leader in research somewhere. It, it might happen in a startup or it might be in academia. That's cool. So you're not necessarily tied to like the academic side or the industry side. I think that that's kind of nice to be open to the possibilities. Yeah, it's true. I think in industry side, I guess I have decided that I might not want to go into like a big company in industry Mm -hmm. research there. Like I really want to lead a group. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like if you go directly there, it's harder to do that. Maybe that's wrong. You should correct me. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I bet that probably totally depends on like the company and stuff. Um, it sounds like at least in, in startups, you get like more hats that you get to wear. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You would know much better than I would. <laughs> I, uh, I think in startups, it's like if you get earlier on, it's easier to have a leadership position kind of. Well, for a really small startup, you're all just leaders in your own little space. And then as, as you expand, you still cover that space but then you have more people working in it. Well, that sounds exciting. Postdoc next, and then you'll go lead the world to have prosthetic spines and (laughs) we'll all be able to like walk in a machine, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Cool visions for the future, for sure. Pierre, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. This was interesting to hear about your your startup and your research and, and what you're doing and your plans for the future. And yeah, thank you again. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. This podcast was produced by the Neurotech Student Club at the University of Washington. Hosted by Manishka Maduri and Zoe Steiny Hansen. Edited by Michael Nolan and Clea Winston. Music by Asad Beck. Cover art by Pavithra Rajeshwaran.